This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. I mean, stop, Seager. Toss on up the first in time to get seven. Three-run homer. Robinson can off the lefty specialist, Fernando Abad. And the Mariners lead it five to four. Cano and Cruz go back to back. And the King, when the Mariners needed him the most, two hits over seven scoreless innings. Now, here's your host, Gary Hill. Well, that didn't go very well as the Mariners fall to the Minnesota Twins. They fall hard. What a weird series this has been already as both teams have destroyed the other so far in this four-game series. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll talk about the game a little, but we won't talk about the game a lot. I think you will enjoy this podcast. This is number 411, and I'm so happy. I already have the name of the podcast all squared away, thanks to you. The winner tonight, Adrian, at Miss underscore A253. This is episode 411, The Twins Strike Back. That's the name of this one. I really enjoy this new naming. Uh, I want uh, Gary Thanson to know it was almost you. Revenge of the Twins was almost the one at Gary Thanson. You were close. So this is already working out great. I appreciate the naming help. Although you don't have to send anything in after the game tonight because there is no podcast coming up Thursday morning with morning baseball. But we're back Friday, so be ready for that one. So this is going to be a fun podcast. Aaron Goldsmith had a long conversation with Jack Morris, and it's really great. I mean, he talks about his day's pitching. He talks about his forkball, which is great. He shares some pretty <laughs> – one moment in particular about the kingdom that's pretty awesome. Uh, Randy Johnson no-hit the Detroit Tigers. And if you remember, I mean, this is that I will never forget. If you can picture in your mind Randy Johnson throwing that last pitch – basically at eye level to Mike Heath, who just swings right through it. And that is an image that has burned in my brain forever. And when you hear Jack Morris tell a story about sitting with Mike Heath right after that moment, it is hilarious to go along with that moment. Also talks about Edgar. Just And talks about one of the greatest World Series games ever that he pitched in. So that comes up, which is really great. It was day two of the draft yesterday. We're going to hear from Scott Hunter again, and it's really good. Not only does he talk about a couple of uh, drafted players, but he goes, he's really up front about their philosophy, what they're looking for. I mean, there's some really good insight there, and I think the draft is fascinating as it is. It is really difficult, not only – the amount of players that you're talking about, whether it's high school or 
JC, small college, major college. I mean, players are everywhere. But you're also talking about signability factors. You're talking about, in the terms of Major League Baseball draft, you're talking about only a certain amount of money you can spend. So if you sign, expected to sign a player above a certain slot, you have to make up for that later on the draft. I mean, it's really a really complicated sort of thing. There's a lot of thought that goes into it, and it's pretty interesting to hear what he has to say about it. So all of that comes up in a few minutes. I guess we'll detail the game here really quick, and it was a good start for the Mariners. At one point, they had a lead. The 1-1 to Seager. Swung on, fly ball down the left field line. Long run. Eddie Rosario still on the run. This one is going to be a fair ball into the corner, and it bounces over the wall down the left field line in front of the foul pole. For a ground rule double, here comes Cano on to score from second. And the Mariners have a 2-0 lead here in the top of the first. RBI number 38 for Kyle Seager. Going the other way down the left field line. Yeah, they actually led 3-0. A four spot in the second for the Twins. And then seven in the third, one in the fourth. And they were stacking up runs quick. The Mariners tried to make a surge back in the fifth. Here's a stretch on the pitch, swinging a ground ball through a wide open right side, a base into the right center field. Cruz is Ronnie third. He will score Valencia with a one out RBI single. Mariners picking up a run here in the top of the fifth. A run batted in for Danny Valencia, and it's now the Twins 12 and the Mariners 6. Yeah, but another inning that would never end. A seven spot in the seventh for the Twins. And you end up with your backup catcher on the mound. Here's the pitch, and it's a strike three called on the inside corner. So Carlos Ruiz with his first strikeout in relief. He strikes out Kenny Vargas. Two outs for the Twins here in the bottom of the eighth inning. Ruiz with a strikeout. How about that? Way to go, Carlos. Well, all you need to know about this series so far is both backup catchers have pitched in the first two games. As the Twins win 20-7, to they pound out 28 hits along the way, which is uh, a record. Mariners have never allowed that many hits before. Their previous high was 26 against the Red Sox in 2015 at Fenway Park. That was a 22-10 to 10 loss. And it's really up there just in terms of most hits ever allowed in a ball game. There's only a handful of games there's ever been more than 28 hits, uh, nine of them to be exact. A handful of teams have picked up 29, not very recently. The most recent was 2007 when Texas beat Baltimore 30-3. to They pounded out 29 hits. 1979, Oakland did it. 1955, the White Sox, 48, Cleveland, 1929, Philadelphia. A couple teams had 30, Yankees and the Giants, the New York Giants, the Yankees in 23 and the Giants in 25. 31 hits for the Brewers in 1992 against Toronto. That was a 22-2 score. And then in 1932, Cleveland, 33 hits against Philadelphia. It should be pointed out it took them a lot of innings to get there. It was an 18-17, 18-inning ball game where Cleveland had 33 hits and Philadelphia had 25 hits. And it still only took four hours, which is pretty remarkable. As look at the box score, Johnny Burnett of the Cleveland Indians went 9 for 11 in the game with four runs scored and a couple of RBIs. That can help the batting average right there. Also, what I enjoyed about this box score, 
is for the A's, Lou Kraus got the start. He only lasted one inning, gave up four hits and three runs. He was relieved by Eddie Rommel, who went 17 innings, allowed 29 hits, 14 runs, 13 earned. He walked nine, and he fanned seven, and he got the win. Not very often you can give up 29 hits as a pitcher and end up getting the win, but that's exactly what happened. Oh, old box scores are the best. So Mariners lose 20-7 to to the Twins. Series now even, and here's what Scott Service said after the game about it. Those nights that you flush? Yeah, you have to. You have to flush that, and we kind of did it for that last night, and they turned around and did it to us tonight. Uh, uh, rough night for, for Bergie. You know, a lot of balls up the middle of the plate, and, um, you know, on a night where the ball was uh, carrying very well uh, in this ballpark, but the, you know, being a little bit warmer, the wind blowing, but you know, we just... Uh, and we couldn't stop them. You know, they just kept squaring it up. And uh, right when I thought we'd kind of get back in the game or try to get something going, uh, just get, get close enough, and then nor could we stop them. So it is one loss. And, uh, you know, we've been going very good. Uh, but tonight just was not a good night. You talked about Birmingham with the pitches. How about the play where he let the run score for third and went dead? Yeah, it was a, uh, you know, first and third. He gets the comebacker. Uh, you know, Blanco, we hit it. Actually, he's one of the toughest guys in the league to double up. Uh, but you know, he probably he had the guy at third. Uh, you know, he just didn't execute and turn turn it into a rundown play. He got the out, and the next guy hits a two-run homer, and then it just couldn't uh, couldn't get it stopped. So, again, we did a lot of things wrong fundamentally tonight. Uh, a rundown play later in the game, didn't cover first later in the game. It just, you know, not our best night. It got away from us. But, you know, it is only one loss, and, and we'll get back after tomorrow. So with Bergman, you gave up the four, but you stuck with pulling the opportunities. Did you hope he could kind of find it after that? Yeah, no doubt. I and mean, he's, you know, he's done that before. We struggled and gone back out and put a couple zeros up, but he just really did not make any adjustments tonight. You know, the ball was just, it was thigh high, and it was everything was nothing had any tilt to it or, or not a whole lot of movement on it either. But yeah, you know, going to the bullpen there in the second inning or third inning was not uh, where we wanted to go. Eventually, it got to the point we had to, and. Uh, you know, Casey Lawrence hung in there and gave us all he could there for a while. In the seventh inning, those guys have been so good all year. Is that just a different situation, one that they're not used to being in with the score of the game and the, the way it was going? Yeah, Zebchinski hadn't pitched in, in four days. Today was his fifth day, so you know, we wanted to get him in the ball game, try to keep sharp. And, you know, he, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't as sharp as he has been. But, you know, he still he got the comebacker, you know, and, and uh, you know, had the kind of the Bosch rundown play at third. So, like I said, things got away from us. Uh, happens you can't uh, you know dwell on it too much um, kind of put this one to bed take a shower wash it off whatever you want to call it and, and we'll be back after tomorrow do you think it's strong tomorrow uh yeah we'll talk about it here later tonight do you think it's easier to shrug this one off because of the way you guys have been playing lately oh no doubt yeah and we've had a few games like this earlier in the year that, that did get away from us um, it happens it happens throughout the course of the season uh, you know, with the, the starting pitching and kind of where we've gone to guys. And we're asking a lot of these guys. We really are. Uh, tonight just wasn't Berkey's night. So I'm going to take that advice and shrug this one off as well. As the Mariners fall to the Twins in Game 2 of the series, it's now even with two games left in the series. Tonight, 5-10 first pitch, same time. Gavilio will take on Irvin Santana, who has been outstanding, 8-3, with a 2-2-0 ERA, coming off a complete game four-hit shutout over the San Francisco Giants on the road. He fanned five. He just walked one. Time before that, 
was his worst start of the season. He gave up seven earned in four innings against the Angels. So we'll see what Irvin Santana has in store. He has been awfully good this season for the Minnesota Twins, and he's been a real key to their success. Remember, no podcast coming up on Thursday. That will be the finale of this series. 10-10 first pitch, Miranda against Barrios, which is going to be excellent. I'm really looking forward to that matchup. So that's game four of the series, 10-10 first pitch from Target Field in Minnesota. Then on to Texas over the weekend for a three-game series. The draft will continue as well. Right now we're going to hear from Scott Hunter talking about day two of the draft. We just completed round 10 of the second day of our, our draft process, and I think we came out in a situation where we're definitely better than where we started. Uh, we got, were very fortunate in many areas, but at the same time we were able to stick to a plan, get more athletic, uh, get younger in certain areas, and, and manage our risk in regards to um, the player pool from this draft class. So if you guys have questions, the time is yours. Scott, uh, great job at MLB.com. It looked like you went heavy in pitchers. Was that was that a plan, or just kind of the way it fell for you? It was kind of the way it fell for us. Um, the the draft wasn't really loaded with college bats, and you know the high school pool in regards to signability, uh, the depth and you know hitter and every scouting director in the history of the game. I've heard it for years. Says there's not enough college, not enough hitters in the draft. Um, you know, we saw some depth with the with the pitching, so we took some chances early on with, uh, you know, obviously Evan White and Sam Carlson. And then we wanted to really, um, I guess, you know, with the depth of the draft, going pitching, and, and it's one of our organization needs right now, just like any organization. But uh, with the amount of moves we've had, the amount of injuries, um, you know, we're in a situation where we, we really wanted to restock and, and get some depth throughout the organization. Can you tell me what did you, what you liked about the Gonzaga pitcher? I mean, did take him in the third round? Yeah, I mean, obviously we were in a situation with uh, Sam Carlson where we had to look for opportunities to balance our bonus pool and get the most out of it. Um, Wyatt Mills was actually a kid who was presented to me that we actually talked about uh, in the top five rounds based on some late, you know, some late videos, some great work by Jeff Sakamoto, our uh, part-time scout also who's working in that, and, uh, that area, Alex Ross. And then Chris Pelicudis mentioned this kid, and they said, yeah, I got a, a, a side armor that throws, you know, 91 to 95, which being a former hitter, I was, you know, I called BS a little bit. And then they put up the video. We looked at it. We looked at his numbers. And living the experience when I was with the Mets, um, with Joe Smith, who came out of, uh, I think it was Wright State, and we the Mets took in the third round, I just kept that in the back of my head. And every time I'd watch the kid's video, it just reminded me of that Joe Smith, Steve Ciszak look. And it's a unique obviously arm slot but to be able to have the ability to throw as many strikes as he does I believe he I mean it was like someone said it was Bugs Bunny numbers I think when they told me about it and I looked at him and he's got 50 strikeouts to four walks and two of them are intentional and from the angle he's doing it from he's a type of guy that you get into the system there's not much uh, more he can do other than go out keep performing it could be a, a quick mover if he keeps doing the things that he's doing right now so you know, some people might say it was a, a little bit of an overdraft, but it, it was a guy that we felt has major league value, could be there quick, and also helped us manage our bonus pool since he was a senior at Gonzaga. How about uh, Cook, the uh, the kid out of Coastal Carolina? It sounds like he's a, a defensive player that, that can hit a little bit too. Yeah, he's a kid that um, Ben Sanderson, uh, Howard McCullough, who's a veteran scout, and, and uh, Devitt Moore, our cross-checker, brought to the table. 
to with us about, you know, because as I kept preaching to guys, we want to get athletic, we want to get uh, stronger through the middle, you know, and obviously the control of the zone, guys that know how to manage a strike zone and, and aren't big swing and miss guys so they can use their tools, um, you know, are, are things we live by and we try to align ourselves with in regards to what our organization values are and our major league manager and GM. And this kid, I mean, it, it really it was eye-popping the, the, the amount of um, conviction our scouts with Ben Sanderson had and the type of kid he was, the athlete. I guess he's been the – I mean, he played in the College World Series last year and was the – I guess they called him the fire starter for that team. He just plays with a lot of energy. He's athletic. He's not overly physical. I mean, he's only 5'10", 5'11", um, about 175, 180 pounds. But he plays with a little bit of an edge. It reminds you of, the, like, the Peter Borges model. Um, so to get a kid like that that has that kind of skill set and tool set in the eighth round, we felt very fortunate. And talk about uh, managing your, your bonus pool a little bit. It looks like you did that sort of, you know, throughout some of these picks here. Is that, is that fair to say? Um, I wouldn't I mean, what we tried to do is we, we thought about we had a couple opportunities to really go overpay in probably the third round and fourth round where we could have maxed it out and basically punted on our next four or five picks. But after sleeping on it last night, we really felt like taking the risk of just maybe overpaying and using all of our bonus pool money in the top two or three rounds, um, we could have continued that model and not built the depth that we've had here. So when I look at it and sitting back on it and after sleeping on it, and then as we went through and I presented it to Jerry what I wanted to do today, um, I felt organizationally it was the best decision to to really manage our pool and get four or five players uh, within range of the bonus slot in each round rather than just shooting for the moon for one player um, and then punting on the rest of our picks. And at the end of the day, the staff and I sat and talked about it. And, you know, you, you always, you know, I don't want to say second guess yourself, but you always aren't, you know, you're never sure if you're making the right decision. But after looking at the lot of players we're able to do by balancing that, I think our organization is in a, in a, in a very good spot right now. Scott, is it a good sign, or is it a good sign for you guys that uh, Sam Carlson's here at the, the stadium today? And yep. Watching you guys take BP? Yeah, he's. I talked to Sam last night. He was. I mean, since the team was in Minnesota, it was kind of fate for all of us. And um, he did the tour. He's meeting with some of uh, the the staff there, and uh, we're pretty confident that this week he'll. Well, once his high school season, he does have one, possibly two more games um, to complete. We're pretty confident that. Uh, he will be in a Mariners uniform not too shortly after. If that happens, do you have a place where you likely send him? I mean, high school kids normally go to the, the, the rookie league in Arizona, but maybe he's advanced enough to go Everett? Yeah, I think at this point, just getting his feet wet, because the first year of any high school kid, I mean, I was a high school draft myself, and it's not so much about the physical part of it. It's more about the mental part, just being on your own, managing your time. Not that we ever have any concerns with Sam Carlson. He's uh, an off-the-charts kid, makeup-wise, and driven on what he wants to be and what he wants to do. But just to ease the transition, put him around players of his peers, you know, and, and get him... Um, acclimated to the pro lifestyle around the probably I, I don't want to say easy confines of Peoria since it is the summer in Arizona so it is going to be quite hot but it's a it's a definitely like a it's a training wheel session basically just to get him going and if he does well maybe move him out of there but it's there's no timetable to rush him in any in any uh, you know facet of the game and here's Go uh, Aaron Goldsmith with Jack Morris Jack, this really is a treat to be able to talk some baseball with you as we both sit here inside Target Field. When people think about Jack Morris, I have to think that one of the first things that comes to mind is the splitter. What did that one pitch do for your career? Boy, it uh, it, it 
took a kid that was probably on the downhill slide and put him right back on top is what it did. Uh, I had a I had a good fastball and a decent change up in the big leagues, and that's that really never escaped me. But I lost the, the feel for my slider; it didn't break as much. I came into the big leagues, which with what I describe as the old high school slider. It was a, a big break, more lateral than vertical. And, uh, you know, I was spinning my arm in a way that you really don't want to without eventually getting hurt. And I started fooling around with the proper way of throwing a slider, which is cutting through the ball, basically a, a cutter on steroids is the proper way of describing a proper cutter. And, uh, you know, I just didn't have the spin rate. I didn't have I didn't have the movement, and I ended up hanging a lot. And so I was in a place where I was trying to get by with two pitches. And when I learned the fork ball, I had the dominant pitch. I had the put away pitch. I had the swing and miss pitch. And so all the other pitches got better. But I also had one that nobody could hit, and it was just so much fun for a while. I had it to myself. I was going to ask, how much of a unicorn, in so many words, was that pitch? How many other guys were throwing that? Nobody in the American League at the time. When I learned it, I was the first guy, and I, I think I pretty much had it by myself for a year in the big leagues. And then guys saw, started seeing, you know, the success I had, and they started playing around with it. And, you know, before I got out of the big leagues, there was majority of pitchers were trying it. But, uh, and consequently, the effect of that is, you know, the first time around, hitters haven't seen it, so they are totally fooled by it. And then, of course, like anything in, in baseball, when more and more hitters see more and more of the same pitch, they're going to have the ability to adjust and start recognizing it. A grizzly bear would be jealous of the size of your hands, Jack. Can, can you throw that pitch if you have average-sized hands? Probably not. No, you have to have big fingers. You've got to be able to spread your fingers and pull through the baseball. And uh, it does put a lot of pressure on your elbow, and that's why there's a lot of minor league uh, development people in all baseball organizations that are trying to prevent that from young kids learning how to throw it. Uh, I I would testify uh, that if you stay on a re, uh, regimented weight program and are conscious of constantly developing your elbow in uh, those muscles that are being used uh, to an extent, I think you can play a whole career without getting hurt. But You've got to be pretty religious about uh, staying on your workout program to avoid injury. So how did you know that? Because as you said, you were kind of pioneering this pitch at the time. And if you look at your career, you were a 30-start-plus guy almost every season. Well, it, I, uh, it was really trial and error. I mean, I, I didn't throw it as much the first year that I did, you know, the subsequent years after that. But I also can say that in the end, uh, the forkball is the pitch that got me that I had an injury because of my own lack of working out. I, I cut back. I didn't, uh, I didn't push that, that part of my workout as hard. And uh, so I'm saying what I'm saying to you with knowledge of why my, my elbow eventually got bit. And finally, can you describe with great detail the action of that pitch, what it looks like to the hitter? It's a fastball arm action. So a hitter seeing a pitcher with the exact same fastball delivery, but the ball tumbles out of your fingers like a curveball. It's got the curveball rotation uh, over the top, and it's spinning, and it breaks straight down, and it's got probably three to four miles an hour slower than your fastball. So it's a pitch that's basically a change curve, but looks like a fastball. Obviously a big part of the success for your career and a big part of your day, I'd have to think, 
when he threw a no-hitter against the White Sox in 1984. This was in the earliest part of the season. It was the NBC Game of the Week. Vince Scully was on the call, Joe Garagiola as well. And you said after the game, Jack, I don't know if you remember this, that you were actually more nervous in the seventh than you were in the ninth. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, the way I'll describe it, and this is the best answer I can give you right now, is I looked up in the sixth inning and saw zeros on the board. And I don't recall ever seeing that before. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I, I said to myself, my gosh, you're throwing a no-hitter. I, I wasn't aware. I wasn't, wasn't even thinking about it, you know. I was just trying to get through the lineup. And I looked up there, and there's a lot of zeros up there. And I guess there was the pressure right there. And once I was able to get through the next inning, um, you know, I, I felt like it was in reach and it, it was doable. And so then I had to go out there and try to, try to prove to myself that I could do it. Legend has it that... Not only did you declare that you would complete the no-hitter to your teammates in the dugout, but that you actually heckled some fans that you would do it. Is this true? Well, they were heckling me. <laughs> they were, you were telling me uh, in the fifth and sixth inning, hey, you got a no-hitter, you're going to blow it. And I told them, quit drinking and sit down and watch history because I'm going to get it. And you need to be here to get it. And don't be so stinking hungover and, and hallucinated that you can't understand what it means. I was teasing them. Then I stepped down the dugout and I look around and everybody's staring at me like, you idiot, you just <laughs> jinxed yourself. And I told Roger Craig, my pitching coach, say, Rog, relax, I'm going to get this. And, you know, it was just confident. It was a young kid confident that, you know, what the heck you got to lose? You might as well talk some trash and just in case it does happen. Jack, you hold the all-time record for most consecutive opening day starts at 14. You did it with a span of three different franchises. What does that record mean to you? Well, you know, it's not really talked about too much uh, in baseball. I don't know as though it's a big deal to a lot of people. But what it meant to me is that I was the number one guy for all those years on every team. And that in itself is a compliment. I. I, uh, I took it as a very big compliment and that I earned it. I didn't, uh, it wasn't handed to me. I earned it. And, uh, you know, to, to go out there and start against the other team's best every year, I knew that I'd be set up in a rotation where I'd, every game I pitched would have to be usually against their number ones unless uh, something happened where, you know, somebody was bumped out. But, uh, you know, opening day was special for me. I enjoyed it. I knew there was going to be a full house no matter where it pitched, on the, on the road or at home. And uh, it was the excitement of baseball's back. I, I, I really enjoyed that day. You made over 20 starts at the Kingdom. Two complete games, one a complete game shutout. What do you remember the most about pitching in that old ballpark? We, we couldn't win there. <laughs> it didn't matter what team I was on. We couldn't win in Seattle. Uh, the great team of 1984, the Tigers started off 35-5. and five. We won 17 straight on the road. I pitched the last game in Anaheim to go 17-0 on the road to start the season. We go up to Seattle and got swept. And that's the kind of <laughs> voodoo that was shaking our brains up in Seattle. I, I just, that building, they had great teams, first of all. They had some really good teams. Uh, and they grinded up there. And, you know, for whatever reason, they had our number. They felt like they could beat us, and they did pretty well. A lot of pitchers talk about the distinct sound of the pop of the catcher's glove inside the kingdom and how it would resonate throughout the ballpark. Is that something that you remember? I got to tell you my favorite kingdom memory. Randy Johnson threw a no-hitter against us there, and Mike Heath was the catcher. I wasn't pitching that day, but he was the catcher, and uh, he swung out on, swung at a strike over his head to, to finalize his no-hitter. 
And I was sitting in the dugout, and I just stayed there. And Mike came back into the dugout, and most of the guys were just watching the celebration on the field. And eventually they started working their way back into the locker, locker room. And Mike eventually kind of crawled down the bench towards me, and it was just the two of us. And he looked at me, and he says, I just missed that pitch. And I said, Mikey, you were out before you got in the box. <laughs> and we laughed. And it was a you know it was a wonderful day for Randy and uh, and uh, the fans in in Seattle, but it, it would kind of it it was a warm fuzzy day for me because we could acknowledge that the guy on the other side was just dominant and there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it. Speaking of dominant, dominant, you faced Edgar Martinez a number of times over the course of your career. What do you remember the most about facing Edgar? He was a hell of a good hitter. Um, he covered the inside part of the plate. He jumped all over early pitches if there were strikes. You know, it was hard to get ahead of him because he, if it was, you know, not a nasty pitcher's pitch, he usually made pretty good contact. So he was one of those guys where you almost had a pitch backwards. You had to try to trick him early and hope that you were ahead uh, because he even got better when you were behind in counts. But uh, Edgar was uh, was a, a real pro's pro. He went out there every day and grinded it, and, uh, man, he could hit. It's a little predictable, Jack, but I'd love to talk to you about October 27th of 1991. It turned out to be one of the greatest games in World Series history in what was one of the greatest World Series in baseball history, and you were the Game 7 starter. Twins versus Braves, Jack Morris versus John Smoltz. Do you remember, first of all, what you were thinking when you were driving to the Metrodome that day? Yeah, we were going to win. You know, I was so confident. As soon as Kirby hit the home run in Game 6, and we and, and gave us the chance for Game 7. There was a total peace that came over me. I, it was almost like a blanket was taken off of me and that I could breathe. And I could not wait. In fact, I told reporters after the game, I said, look, it, there's going to be 54,000 of the same people here tomorrow night. The umpires are going to be the same. Both teams are going to suit up the same way. Everybody else is going to be here. I said, let's go ahead and play now. Why wait around? You know, that's how confident I was. If Gene Larkin hadn't won it for the Twins in the bottom of the 10th, would you have pitched the 11th? 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, whatever it took. I, I really believe I had five, six more innings in me. I mean, I, w I was pitching on adrenaline, but that was the last game I was going to pitch that year, and I had some gas left in the tank. So, you know, I, as long as Tom Kelly would let me go back out there, in my mind I was going to go out there and give it at all. I, I, uh, I was getting stronger from the seventh inning on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an adrenaline rush. It's just a total zone that rarely happens in any pro sport. But um, I was more and more confident as the game rolled on. So how did you manage to command pitches and execute pitches with all of the adrenaline that was pumping through your body? Well, I think it takes an inning or two to kind of settle in. Uh, you know, and that was true of any game in my career. It seems like no matter where you pitch, even if it's in a home ballpark, you go to the bullpen mound, you throw your warm-up pitches, you come to the mound on the field, and you've got a little different adjustment. The depth, all those things that you see behind the catcher, everything changes. And the game, you know, typically when they talk about, managers talk about the game speeds up, it does because you're kind of in a, in a rush of uh, wanting to get early outs and all that. And so, you know, I had a history of first couple innings, if they got to me, that was probably going to be – the time to get to me but I don't think I was the only pitcher in baseball with that kind of history I'm typically most of the good pitchers of our generation and before our generation 
if you got them, you got them in the first three. After that, when they got in a groove and got their rhythm, um, they really started pitching better all the time. Whether it was Game 7 of the World Series or the no-hitter or opening day, did you feel as mean as you looked on the mound? <laughs> I'm the nicest guy I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've been told that, obviously. I, I competed. I, I wasn't afraid to compete. I didn't necessarily like the other team. Um, it's just the way we grew up in, in, in the sport. Um, and I, you know, I, I figured if there's intimidation at all and I'm gaining some kind of advantage because of it, why be Mr. Nice Guy? Yeah. So I had no problem with that reputation. And the reality is I don't think I was that much different than anybody else. Uh, but I, I can say that I wanted to win probably as much or more than most guys. Jack, this has been a complete treat. Thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. See you later!